In this episode, I sit down with Nate Cooper to talk about how we can improve our learning, develop better learning habits, and use learning to improve virtually every area of our lives. Get ready, because you are now listening to Tiny Leaps, Big Welcome to another episode of Tiny Leaps, Big Changes, where I share simple strategies you can use to get more out of your life. My name is Greg Clunas, and in this episode, I want to talk about learning. I want to talk about how we acquire skills, how we acquire knowledge, and how we utilize those two pieces of the puzzle to drive improvement in virtually every area of our lives. And in order to do this, I thought, you know what, it would be interesting to have someone who is kind of an expert in this space, someone who has taught for many years, who has written books, and just delved deep into this world of knowledge acquisition. So I brought my buddy Nate Cooper on the show. Nate is a teacher, an author, a writer, and soon-to-be podcaster because he's working with me to launch his new show called Cutting cut the learning curve. And um, I'm just pumped to pick his brain, better understand what we as everyday people trying to improve our lives can do to learn better. And so Nate, are you uh, are you ready to go? Yes, I am, Greg. Thanks for having me on your show. Absolutely. So let's start here. I always like to get a better understanding of who the person is and why they are the person that they are. Um, so I think the best first question here is what drives your interest in learning? What what drives your interest in, in sort of knowledge and skill acquisition? That's a, that's a great question. So um, I guess going way far back, both of my parents are, are teachers. I, I spent most of my career working in academia and then in corporate education. So I was a trainer at Apple for many years. And um, I left there in 2011. And um, I've been teaching people, you know, Apple has these like workshops um, about how to use their technologies. And um, I just became really fascinated by the ways in which uh, people can get really intimidated by learning new things, especially complex things like, uh, you know, computer software. And um, so I took that with me in the past, you know, six or seven years teaching in academic environments and teaching in corporate environments and really um, diving into this world of, of coding education as it's developed um, to really, you know, help people kind of overcome their roadblocks. So I've just been really fascinated, I guess, by this idea of how do you help someone who maybe is at a point of frustration or a really, you know, fear, uh, you know, overcome those those problems to to move to the next level, especially to achieve 
their career goals? So um, that's actually a really great question. I'm a big fan, and, and we talked about this in a few episodes with Rob Fajardo about uh, this concept of, of sort of starting our journeys with a question that we're trying to answer. And, and it seems like yours is, you know, how do we take this process of learning and, and simplify it for people to remove some of that intimidation? But then also, how does the individual navigate that, which is fascinating to me, because as, as the listeners know, I'm a big fan of uh, the psychological elements of personal development, which learning is a a big role. Let me ask you, how much do you think that just sort of the underlying mindset of a person, how how much do you think that plays a role in their ability or inability to learn a new skill? Oh, um, if not 100%, then a very, very high percentage. Um, You know, I find basically as I've been teaching people in these like coding classes, oftentimes people would come into the classroom day one and they would say something like, oh, well, I'm just not built for that. I just don't have the brain for that. My brain doesn't work that way. And really all of those statements are what we might call fixed mindset statements. And I know you're really familiar with this idea, Greg. And um, I was really, as a teacher, kind of searching for ways that I, I could explain that. And when I found kind of the growth mindset and was able to kind of put a label to what it takes to to learn, it was just an eye-opening experience because I'd seen it happen uh, over and over again in the classroom that, you know, it, it was just like you could tell from day one when somebody was approaching something, being open-minded, that they were going to get something out of the class. Even if they weren't going to be, you know, a programmer, you know, at the end of the day, they were still going to set themselves up correctly to be on the right path and have the right approach. And so, you know, that's really, uh, you know, whether I was teaching a a 90-minute class or a 10-week or a 12-week class, I just noticed that those people who had those growth mindset approaches were always the ones finding success. And those who were in the fixed mindset, it was like, you know, just that alone was going to prevent them from from learning. And so I started deliberately bringing that in the classroom and starting with day one, instead of starting with, here's all the software you'll need to become a programmer. Um, I would actually start with, here's the mindset you need to actually approach problem solving in the way that a programmer thinks. And uh, I found much better success with that. And that's brilliant. Thank you. Yeah, it's, uh, it's really great because, like I said, it's often people – it's their emotional uh, sort of reaction to the situation that that holds them back from learning. So yeah, I think mindset is a huge portion, if not the biggest portion of of learning. Because if you don't have the right mindset, you're never, you don't have the prerequisite needed to even start down the path of learning. Right, right. That makes a ton of sense. Uh, so it's almost like. Or actually, let me let me ask uh, this to you. So would you say that you know we've been talking a lot about sort of skill acquisition here. So learning to code, uh, learning to cook, go to the gym, whatever it is. Uh, Would you say that that also plays a role when it comes to sort of learning and replacing habits that we've held for a long time? Oh, absolutely. Um, Yeah, because really learning is a process. You're never really going to be, you're never really going to be done. There's this great quote that, um, there's the book, The Art of War, or The, the War of Art, sorry. The, the Art, Art of War is also a very good book, but War of Art, um, basically he says something like, if you're always asking yourself, uh, you know, am I an artist? Am I a writer? Then you're probably on the right path. And those people who are so sure of themselves that they don't have some doubt or some question 
uh, those are the people that are usually faking it. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing there, but it's a great book. It's uh, worth exploring. But I, to me, that's really the essence of learning, right? Because if you are on a path where you are in a growth mindset, you are saying, I am going to become this person, a writer, a teacher, a, a cook, you know, or, um, a chef, like all of these things are going to take effort. And so you always have to kind of push yourself. And so, you know, I think it's really easy when you're not that to, uh, you know, if you're sort of looking from the outside and saying, I want to be that, it looks like it's sort of this set thing. Uh, it looks like it's something that, you know, is unattainable because that person has all of these things that I don't have. But really from the inside, uh, you know, it, it's often that people are, are constantly evolving and changing and, and questioning. And that's really what makes them that that person. That's really what makes them, uh, you know, have that skill set. You know, just from my own field to bring it back to my experience with, with coding, people always ask, what coding language should I learn? And um, really what I think they don't realize is that it often doesn't matter when you're starting out because it's more about how you solve problems that makes you a good programmer. That isn't to say there aren't skills that are more valuable in the marketplace or if you want to do one particular thing versus another. And there's certainly a lot of things in there, but you're never even going to get to that point if you are um, not asking the questions at the stage you're at. And so it's not that, you know, at some point learning is is just you reach some flagpole and now you've learned a thing. It's that learning is a process by which you are always asking a different set of questions. So you're always kind of looking for, okay, I've done that. Now what do I do? I've done that. Now what do I do? Right. And if you're taking something on as a profession or a skill set or a, a passion even, you're going to get better if you keep asking those questions. So you do, you know, kind of always want to be learning. And I think this is really what inspired me to, to move into these other areas of education where, you know, I, I felt like when I grew up, I went to college and the idea was you pick your career and in four years, you you know what you're going to do and then you stay in that career path forever. And the world in which we live right now is not that. <laughs> we live in a world where the rules are constantly changing, where there are new opportunities and things that we thought were going to last forever, you know, maybe are going by the wayside or evolving. And so being a good learner is, I think, one of the, the best ways that you can kind of future-proof your career, asking those questions, you know, how do I get better? How do I get to the next level is really the, the best way to kind of ensure that you're on the right path. Yeah, absolutely. So there, there's two things that come to mind here. So I, I guess I'll, I'll sort of tackle the first here first. Last week, we did an episode on uh, the difference between skills and sort of mindset, right? So the whole concept was that skills are a commodity and the way you view the world, the mindset you bring to the table is where sort of the value differentiation comes. I, I can't help but think of this concept listening to you because it's almost like, so if we we take the example of a, a programmer, right? So somebody who is learning to build software applications, they can learn Ruby on Rails or PHP or JavaScript or, or whatever the language is, and they can get incredible at it. But anybody can go and learn that language and all of a sudden they're competition for that person, right? On the other hand, if that person becomes a phenomenal JavaScript developer, but is also 
sort of cultivating this mindset and this approach of continual improvement, continual learning, continual just acquisition of new skills as the technology changes and, and is always just sort of in the game because they have that mindset of, you know, learn more and, and learn better and, and be better. All of a sudden, they're not competing just on skill. They're also competing on uh, the way they approach their work and the way they approach the world around them in the changing industry. Have you seen something like that sort of dynamic play out amongst your students or in your own life? Yeah, I think what you're talking about, I mean, what it's reminding me of is uh, is kind of the blue ocean sort of approach to, to learning things. Um, I think it's just from what I've seen, it's what we can kind of take from these industries that are kind of on the front lines of change and adapt to other other circumstances. I guess in my life, where that's come about is through hackathons, and I'm not even sure how familiar uh, your audience will be with hackathons. It's one of those things that seems massive within the tech industry, but right. but it can often feel like a niche thing outside of it. Uh, just, just save us the confusion and break down what a hackathon is for us. Yeah, so a hackathon is a it's a really interesting kind of fun type of event where you volunteer to get together with a group of strangers um, or, or maybe just a few friends for a weekend, and you go through the process of building a project. And sometimes there are prizes, sometimes there's a particular goal, like we want to build a, a, a kind of a, an app for location awareness, or we want to build, uh, you know, NASA runs a hackathon where they want to use NASA data. And so the idea, though, is, and, and the reason why I'm so enthralled with hackathons is that they really force people to, to step out of their, their comfort zones. You show up to a hackathon, like I said, you probably don't know most of the people there. And day one, you know, people come pitch ideas and they say, like, we're going to work on this, we're going to work on that. And then you just sort of form these groups naturally based upon your interests. And in your group, you're going to have to do something. <laughs> and it doesn't matter what it is that you know or do. It's, it's really what's needed for the project. And um, it becomes this microcosm um, where, you know, basically you're building this company or this project and becomes the most important thing for that weekend um, if you really invest in it and you really get hooked on it. Um, I was involved for several years with a mobile hackathon called Startup Bus. And uh, this happened on a moving bus. So there's a bunch of strangers that get on a bus. They can't leave. <laughs> you know, I mean, we get off to use the bathroom and stay in hotels and things like that. But basically, you're kind of stuck with these strangers. And in three days, we had to build a company. And um, what I really like about that environment is it sort of forces people out of their sort of regular comfort zone. You might say, well, I, I, uh, I know some Photoshop, but I'm not, I don't, I'm not a designer, you know? And the thing is you get in a hackathon environment and somebody says, we need a logo. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, I'm not, I know Photoshop. They're like, wait, you know, Photoshop. Great. Give us a logo in an hour. And it really just pushes you to, <laughs> to really have to confront those things that are, are mindset uh, things. And you don't even really realize it um, until, you act, until you're doing it. You're like midway through it. And you're like, oh, crap, I guess I am this person. You know, um, my first hackathon, uh, which was Startup Bus, I was the pitch person. And I had given lots of talks, you know, and I taught for many years and been in front of groups and stuff like that. But I suddenly had to like, you know, research our product and market. And I had to go up in front of real investors 
after three days and, and represent this team and kind of, you know, position the product. And, and it was really like, I, I'd never pitched an investor before. I'd never come up with any sort of like pitch deck, but because I had that public speaking skill, my team was like, oh, you're going to, you're going to do it. You, you, you have that. And I, right. it really just forced me to kind of come out of my shell and go, oh, I guess, I guess I do have that. I guess I'm, I'm the right person for that. And, and I feel like environments like that, it really need to become more common. You know, I think that there, there's opportunities for hackathon formats where people really do things that they're not so comfortable with, but are nurturing and safe, you know, and places where people can experiment and be free. Because those environments, I think, for those who've been through it, I don't know if you've been to a hackathon, Greg, but it's you learn a lot. You learn so much. And I think that when I talk to other people, um, you know, oftentimes people don't think of hackathons as like a learning uh experience. But when I mentioned it, you know, it, everybody realizes, yes, of course it is, because you're, you're getting to kind of sandbox um, something that might be, you know, scary on the real world. Like if you have a project and you're like, oh, I want to, I want to build this project, but you're holding on to it and it's in your brain and you never tell anybody about it. You never work on it. You never try to get it out there. You're never going to know whether you're going to be ready for it or not. And, and, you know, we have to find environments where, uh, it's it's okay and it's safe to experiment because those are going to be the places in which growth happens, you know? And so for sure, you can sit there and list out, oh, I'm good at this, I'm good at that, I'm good at whatever, until you actually go and, and sort of have to do something right. and like put those skills to the test. You know, you're never really gonna, you're never really gonna know. Um, and so, yeah, I think um, I, I totally, it totally resonates with me. It also reminds me of, um, I was talking with a friend of mine, Orion, um, who does these like quarterly review things. And, and he was talking about the difference between goals and what he calls visioning. So it's kind of like what, what he was kind of saying is that, you know, you have kind of your vision, which is like the thing you want to be, the thing you want to do. And this could be in, in a particular area of life. I want to be, I want to meditate more, or I want to, you know, get a new job in, in the next six months or whatever. And th these are kind of things that are not necessarily a goal, more of a kind of a high level idea of how things will be if you are settled with yourself. And within that, you can set goals. So I think that's kind of, it mirrors a little bit of what you're talking about, where I think, you know, you could sit there and list out skills that you have, but they're really abstract. Um, and it's, if you want to learn skills, this is also the case. Like if you just list out the things you want to learn, there's a disconnect until you actually go to ex execute them. <laughs> so, you know, there's always going to be kind of this tension between I want to be this thing versus, you know, where I'm at right now. And the, the way you decrease that gap is, well, you say it in your show name, you, you take small steps towards that. So, you know, looking for opportunities where you can say, hey, let me try this out. Let me see how I can test. If I think I'm really this good at this thing, or, or if I really want to get better at it, what's a way that I can go and do that? That's not, you know, the big leap maybe that's so scary. That's like, you're never going to get to it, but what's like a next step, you know, that you can take that will move you in that direction, move the needle just a little bit further so that you realize what's, what's possible and that you're capable of it. And then you can step back and look at it and go, Hey, that wasn't, right, that wasn't right. so bad. So actually I, I love where you're going with this because first of all, uh, jumping back to sort of the hackathon thing, it, it almost reminds me of this like very small compressed period of time in a safe space to sort of force yourself to learn new things. So you go in and you don't really know the people that you're going to be working with. Not everyone on the team necessarily has the the skills required to play out all of the roles they have to, to do. But 
you have limited resources, you have a limited amount of time. And so you just sort of have to do it and start learning it on on the spot and, and be forced to take that first step, which the beautiful piece of taking the first step when you go from zero to one, it makes it much easier to go from one to 10. So in your case, uh, with that hackathon example that you gave, if you then decided, hey, you know what, I really enjoyed that, let me go learn everything about how to pitch startup products. All of a sudden, it's much easier to jump into because you've done it once and, and you've started that process. And then the second piece of uh, sort of where you're going with this or my interpretation of is I, I love this concept of, you know, just taking what it is we want to do, breaking it down to the smaller steps, which I mean, I built an entire show around that. So of course, I love that. But then adding and I, it's funny, I did an episode on this last week, too, is the last episode of uh, 2017, adding this sort of shortened timeline to it, right? So instead of setting a resolution that your due date is the following year, set a resolution that lasts 90 days. And and by the end of the first 90 days, like you have to look at the results and maybe you don't accomplish it. But because you set a compressed timeline, just like with sort of this hackathon example, you're forced to take action sooner, you're forced to do things faster and, and start to make progress rather than spend all this time thinking about it. For sure. Yeah, I, I just did this process myself where, uh, you know, I mentioned the quarterly review thing. And, um, you know, pe- people think, you know, about like, is this year, you know, like a yearly resolution? This year is the year I'm going to do whatever. And I did this process, um, again, through Orion. Um, he organized this group. And um, it was like, what are you going to do in the next three months? And what what I realized, I was really surprised by what I put down in terms of my goals. Because, you know, if I think about a year, such a long time span, I kind of, you know, think like, oh, this is where I'd like to be next year. You know, this is, these are some really big overarching things. This is, you know, if you have a longer span of time, if it's so short, you realize that, you know, okay, well, okay, what can I do today or tomorrow? And we can often under or overestimate that. But I think this middle period, like you said, 90 days, I think is great because it's like, I was surprised when I actually had to do that. You know, I put down a different goal than I would have thought I would have in a year span time or even in a week or or a month span of time. Um, And so, yeah, I think that looking for these sort of middle tier steps, because if you're of the mind, I think step one is you have to have that growth mindset. Once you have the growth mindset, you have the prerequisite to move. And then the next step is that you sort of test and you iterate. So, you know, and, and I talk a lot about this in the podcast, you know, is that the the idea is that you're always kind of like going between either searching for and gathering information or you're you're executing or you're taking steps. And I think that both of those things um, are important to the process of, of learning and the po- process of growth. It, it's, uh, you know, oftentimes we can feel like we're sort of stuck on a singular, single path. And in those times, it's important to take a step back and to reevaluate. And, um, you know, and then other times you, you, you're kind of evaluating, you're thinking about it too much and what you really need to do is execute. But really the two together are what help, you know, kind of iterate and, and improve on, on a process. So Nate, uh, so the podcast is called Cut Your Learning Curve, Hack Your Brain to Learn Better and Get the Career You Want. Tell me a little bit about the show. Yeah. So basically, 
the idea of the podcast grew out of a lot of the stuff I've been writing um, in the past year about stuff I've learned in the classroom. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier that I started deliberately bringing in growth mindset to the classroom. And I also got really deep into some topics like design thinking and the dual system process theory in psychology. And so I've been reading a lot about the brain. Uh, I also really got heavily into meditation in the past two years and just started to think about how all of these different influences helped me as an instructor and also helped to explain some of the things that I find that challenge people when they're trying to learn a new skill. So it's basically just in the past you know, kind of year trying to write through and work through a lot of these ideas and, and really codify them. And so I'm developing, you know, frameworks to help people learn better and also, uh, you know, using heuristics that I've found that work well for, for other people to learn. And I think, um, you know, it's basically the podcast is that is, is me exploring different topics that I've learned that really apply when it comes to people wanting to learn a new skill. Got it. It seems like, is it going to be very, you know, kind of like the underlying philosophy of learning better or more sort of the execution and, and practice of learning better or sort of a combination of both? I think it's really the combination of both. Um, you know, I think that, you know, one of your, one, one person in your group asked about habit forming and, and habit forming and, you know, the stuff I've read about that, I think really does apply quite a bit to to learning in as much that I think a lot of the ways that you set habits is based around how well you kind of know how your brain works and, and how best to set yourself up for success. But it's also a lot of just groundwork to sort of open yourself up to new possibilities. So that growth mindset that you brought up, which I think is the prerequisite for it. So yeah, it's a little bit of both. I mean, I, I find the brain really fascinating, but I'm not sort of formally trained uh, as, as a psychologist or neurologist. I just read a lot of that stuff. What I'm trying to do is take some of those ideas and bring them down into what I've seen in terms of just practical applications in the classroom um, and, you know, helping people kind of develop frameworks. Because at the end of the day, you know, and, and this is probably going to be similar to how I would answer a lot of questions in regards to learning. Learning is very personal. And, and you know, I think that educators, uh, we talk about this a lot, but, you know, it's one of those maybe things that doesn't always come across in terms of, you know, being communicated well to the student. You know, th there's this idea of, of a personal learning path or, um, you know, uh, scaffolding, which are things that, that instructors kind of use on the back end to talk about how students learn. And, you know, what I'm noticing is that, you know, with, the, with all of these different possibilities going on, just in terms of access to education, it's becoming more personalized or at least potentially more personalized. I think the access to information is so insanely useful and vital, but we as ourselves as learners don't really think like teachers, you know, and, and really I think some of these things that, you know, we talk about in terms of student growth paths and things that when you kind of personalize it and you, you internalize it and you're able to kind of build a system that works for you, you're going to be able to track progress better. So that's really, I think, you know, why I think it's important to get this stuff out there because teachers talk about this stuff all the time. And I just don't think it's really well known, you know, outside of that world. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Okay, so let's, uh, speaking of the community, let's turn 
over to uh, we've got two questions here for you from uh, from members of the Facebook community. By the way, if you have not already, head over to Facebook.com, search Tiny Leaps and join the private community exclusively for podcast listeners. We've got like 2,800 people in here that are constantly sharing advice with each other, their stories, their experience, their struggles, and helping all of us to move forward just a little bit at a time. Uh, so the first question comes from Julia Calder. Julia says, is it beneficial to use kitchen timers, countdowns, etc., for self-development tasks such as journaling, exercise, meditation, and more? Or does that put an unhealthy and unnecessary amount of pressure on ourselves? So I've got my opinion on that and I'll jump in afterwards, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts, Greg. The uh, yeah, I think it's an interesting thing that she brings up the the topic of pressure, uh, because I think that that's really good to to think about. You know, um, as I mentioned earlier, all learning is is personalized. So if you are putting yourself in any situation where pressure is involved, um, you have to realize that that pressure can at some point. Um, harm the learning process. Um, that doesn't mean that all learning is easy. And in fact, some some learning is going to be quite hard. And this is where some of the psychology behind it, um, I think, comes, comes in handy. I've used Pomodoro quite a bit. Um, Pomodoro is the sort of technique of setting a timer and then doing a, a burst of, of work. Um, and there's a couple of things that I think, it, I found it very helpful, I have to say. Um, and there's a couple of things that I think help me make sense of that. Um, one is this idea of maker versus manager time, which I think um, is a really important concept. If you haven't heard of it before, there's a great blog post if you search on it. Uh, but basically this idea that when you are sort of managing yourself uh, or managing other work, there, there's sort of a manager mindset that you put on a manager hat. You're, you're scheduling time and you're answering emails. You're doing a lot of little tasks, but the tasks are not very deep. They're uh, very quick and, and you can go through a, like a long list of them um, in a short span of time. Um, whereas maker time is quite different. It takes a little bit longer to get into and really what, it, what it's uh, – I think most related to in, in psychology is, is the flow state. So if you've ever heard of the flow state, it's basically um, this active engagement that you find. And you can do it in almost any kind of activity, um, but it's kind of this universal sort of psychological concept where basically you're, you're, you're starting on a task and you hit a stride and it's something that you're so locked into that al almost the whole world fades away and you're just kind of focused on that one task. And um, this kind of maker time, this sort of flow state is much kind of harder to get into unless you kind of figure out ways to to enact it. So one, you have to know what flow is, <laughs> and then you have to figure out the conditions in which flow will will work to your benefit. And so Pomodoros and, and you know, using a timer to chunk up your time, and usually the idea is that like you're doing larger chunks of, of work time, I think they're going to work best if they can engage a flow state. If you are feeling a lot of pressure, <laughs> uh, so much so that you're not even thinking about the task at hand, that's not going to work for your benefit. You know, So um, they're going to work well if you know what flow is and you can figure out ways to engage it. Now, the, the other thing I just want to say really quickly on this is that there's there's sort of two systems in, in your brain that work for or against you. There's the system one, which is more automated, more unconscious, and very quick to do tasks. And then there's the problem-solving system two, which is effortful and takes energy and, and resources and it actually requires more calories, and it burns out more quickly. When you start something new, 
your system two is more active. So it, it's very effortful. It's very hard. And your brain is very focused on that thing. Once you start to get to know something and once you start to kind of pass over that hurdle of getting into the flow state, you're going to actually go much more quickly. So the thing is, is that both of these systems are are in your brain kind of working for and against you at different times. They're both going to be working for your benefit overall. Um, but whether or not you can you know, actively engage flow and, and how quickly you can get into flow is really dependent on the task at hand, how many times you've done it, whether you, whether you even know what a flow state feels like. So, you know, I would certainly say, like I said, pressure is not in itself good, but effortfulness and, and working and understanding that effortfulness that you're working towards that will be reduced over time with practice, that is, that is a good thing. So, you know, I, that's one thing I really like about about doing the kitchen timer thing is that, you know, sometimes I just don't want to do the task. <laughs> and until I sit down and do it, I'm not going to just confront that sort of unnatural sort of, um, you know, resistance that I have to, to doing it. But once I start doing it, I'm going to go into flow and then do it more quickly. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And my view on it is uh, pretty similar. I would basically just say, embrace the pressure and pay attention to what it's doing for you. And what I mean by that is we've talked on this show before about the differences between eustress and de-stress. Eustress is pressure and, and stress that sort of pushes you in a positive direction. And, and de-stress is the, the one that sort of causes you to break down and be unable to, to, to take action or do anything that is productive. The truth is that these systems, kitchen timers, you know, putting countdowns, putting limitations on yourself, sort of compressing that time does add pressure. And like, there's no way around that. It does add pressure. That's the whole point of it. Uh, however, that pressure doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing or a good thing. It's just a thing. And, and so you can choose to embrace the fact that it's going to add pressure to the situation and use that to generate some adrenaline and, and sort of drive you forward. Or if it becomes too much pressure, as, as sort of Nate alluded to, uh, and it's causing you to not be able to move forward and not take action, then in that scenario, maybe don't set the, the timer. The other point that I want to make that is sort of just reiterating what Nate touched on in the end is that sometimes it requires a little bit of pressure in order to get yourself to do anything. And, and, and this is an important piece, sometimes setting a kitchen timer for 24 minutes as is standard with the Pomodoro is not pressure at all. And, and what I mean by that is if I need to sit down and write my book, you know, this is a task that I struggle to sort of do uh, because it's so overwhelming. But if I know that I only have to do it for 24 minutes and it's not this like big long thing I need to devote several hours to all of a sudden it's easier to to take the time and, and do it so um I would say on the one hand embrace the fact that there's going to be pressure and try to utilize that pressure to push you forward but always be paying attention to how you're reacting to that pressure to make sure that it never gets to a point where it's overwhelming um, and then two adding pressure can sometimes be the the Thing that pushes you to take action in the first place. All right. So uh, jumping to the, totally. the, the next question here. So we've got from Jeremy Cutler. Uh, he says, in habit development, there are certain keystone habits that can help someone overall become better at building strong habits, such as running, meditation, etc. Um, so he's talking here about sort of the 
base level habits that if you win there sort of drives you to win in other areas. Um, so then he says, is there any particular analog in knowledge acquisition? So when learning, are there any skills specifically that should be developed as a, a basis that will drive you to accelerate and win in the other areas of learning? Um, now I have no opinion on this because I have no idea. So I'm, I'm really anxious to learn from you here. Yeah, it's um, that's great. The um, I think I was just thinking as you were talking uh, about the last answer uh, or last question about um, you know how do you sort of tell when pressure is good or not, um, and I was thinking about where uh, you know basically where I see a lot of people fail, and and I mentioned this a little bit earlier is um, overscaling the problem, and so one one sort of really easy sort of like habit to form around learning or, uh, and really to make sure you're moving towards any goal is, uh, is list like to-do lists, you know, basically checking things off. You know, I think that one of the things that I know that when, you know, when we do, um, when we feel that pressure, um, it's often that we are thinking so much about the big goal and not so much about the individual tasks. And we're, we're not noticing all of the work that we've done to basically set up the problem. So for example, you know, if you are experiencing writer's block, one technique is just to open up your word processor and just leave it open, just open it up. <laughs> and you don't even have to write anything. You just have to sit there with it open and you sort of set a task of just, okay, I opened it up today. And then, you know, you can go from there to like, you know, I want to write three pages every day or something like that. So these literal intermediate tasks where you're scaling it from a big problem to a smaller problem is so important. And I think that part of that is literally just uh, note taking or checking things off. Now, I think the bigger picture thing for me in terms of developing learning habits and and kind of what it was keystone kind of ideas is is um, basically the mental model. So basically, you know, when you're thinking about do you know something, um, you you have this idea of a, a model of of the thing in your brain. So if you think about what a model is, think about a, an airplane, and then you think about a model airplane. So a model airplane gives you a lot of information about when an airplane is. It lets you pick it up and turn it around and look in the cockpit, and you can put it down on the table if you want to. But that model, you know, even though it's giving you a lot of information, isn't the full thing. So when we know something, when we know a skill or when we are, are thinking about something, what we are thinking about that thing in our brain is, is a model. It's a mental model. It's how all of the things are connected in your brain. And I do this episode of the podcast talking about mental models and this really useful technique, Richard Feynman was a really uh, famous physicist and an expert instructor. And he came up with this thing called the Feynman technique. Um, I mentioned a lot uh, how, you know, there, there's a lot of things that teachers know. And I think that where we're going to do best when, when learning is by teaching ourselves, by really thinking about it as I am a learner, but I'm also taking ownership of how I can learn. And so the Feynman technique is basically you write down on a piece of paper everything you know about a particular subject. So let's say that you want to learn JavaScript. You basically write down JavaScript and then you start to write it out. And what you want to do is use really simple language. And the idea is that you're sort of explaining it as if you were to a beginner. And as you're writing it down, you're going to make a note anytime you notice that there are gaps in your understanding. And these gaps are where you can go back and you can learn and read more. And you're going to go back and forth multiple times. And then you're going to kind of keep going back to this uh, process of writing it out. So basically, if, if you know a concept, and this is kind of paraphrasing Feynman, is that you're going to be able to explain it to the average person uh, with, with relative ease. And so 
if you're looking for kind of milestones with learning, you're going to have to do these sort of self-assessments, um, another kind of teaching term, uh, where you're where you're sort of breaking down the concept and checking in with yourself as to how much you know it. So it's kind of a two-part thing that I'm talking about. One is that make sure you're scaling the problem to the level you're at. So you might say, well, I know nothing about JavaScript. Well, if you know the word and you know that it works in a web browser, even something like that, those little things can actually, that is your mental model, you know, then you can go and read about it. And then you try to basically write it out and you start to basically re-explain it and and rewrite it out. You don't want to just paraphrase too. I think this is a key concept is you're trying to actually strengthen those connections in your brain uh, of, of how you think of that concept. And um, by sort of explaining it to yourself or explaining it to someone else, you, you really are doing that kind of to-do list. You're really doing that checkoff of like, hey, am I, how, how good am I at this right now? Or where do I want to be? Um, you know, at every stage of learning, you're going to have to ask those questions. So I think that, um, you know, that's really the idea of being a lifelong learner is that you're, if you're always asking the right questions and you're always looking for the next problem to solve, then you're probably on the right learning path. So I would say if you haven't done the Feynman technique and you want to learn a particular skill, it's a great place to start because <laughs> you're definitely going to be able to figure out what you don't know about a topic when you try to explain it. But then also just kind of making sure that you're checking in and keeping track of your pro- progress is going to help you not feel that pressure and not feel like you are just never reaching your goal. Because even those intermediate tasks of opening opening your you know word processor or or sitting down with the book, you know, all of those things are going to be steps along the way. Even if what they're teaching you is just that that isn't the best book for you, you want to make sure you track and you you reward your progress as as well. Does that make sense? No, yeah, absolutely. That makes perfect sense. So, Jeremy, it sounds like, you know, the the best thing you can build from sort of a pillar, I guess, is to focus on your models of learning. So using things like the Feynman technique or just sort of developing your mental models around learning seems to be the best way to accelerate your learning in in the particular areas you might care about. Uh, So, Nate, I want to take a moment to thank you for coming on the show. Uh, I've learned a ton here, and and I know that uh, the listeners have as well. Uh, to you guys out there, the show is called Cut Your Learning Curve. You can find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, I would recommend heading over there right now. This show is wrapping up, so just do a quick search, Cut Your Learning Curve, or search Nate Cooper. And uh, head over there and just uh, take a listen and consider subscribing because you've heard that Nate is an incredibly intelligent and well-versed learning and, and sort of knowledge acquisition expert. And I've listened to the first couple episodes of this show and it's it's fantastic. There is going to be incredible value uh, delivered through that. And so I'm positive it'll become one of your favorites. It's definitely one of mine. Uh, So head over to Cut Your Learning Curve. Just do a search for it wherever you are listening to this. And uh, with that said, Nate, again, thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing your knowledge with us. And uh, remember that all big changes come from the tiny leaps you take. Every day, every day.